Coming up, uh, Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Uh, this is uh, Dan Zhang. Uh, today we're going to be uh, focusing on uh, the um, issues relating to critical thinking in academia and how that is under attack by right-wing fascist kind of forces. Um, and <laughs> so, uh, but before we do that, uh, an update. Uh, the fires in uh, Irvine and uh, Orange County uh, have been... Um, uh, almost contained. Uh, they will be contained actually by Friday, they expect. Uh, the fire is moving towards uh, Riverside County. And um, Mike Davis, uh, a UCI professor, will be speaking uh, on uh, this issue on campus coming up. And uh, his talk is going to be uh, a pretty uh, coming up on th- uh, October 31st. A public lecture at uh, UCI's uh, Cal IT2 building, which is next to Bren Hall on Ring Road. And Mike will be talking about uh, Katrina in the suburbs, the politics of fire in Southern California. And that will be a public lecture at, uh, at, uh, on the 31st in room 3008. And I... Uh, I'm sorry, I don't have the time. Uh, I will get you the time. And you can look at the Subversity website, uh, KUCI.org slash tilde, D-T-S-A-N-G, for the time that Mike Davis will be talking about this. Uh, We had asked him to be on the show, and he is actually helping some family in San Diego where he lives at this time. Um, Today we're going to be talking uh, with uh, Reggie uh, Dillon, who's with a group that's... uh, uh, alerting uh, academia to the threats that it's facing. Uh, welcome, Reggie. Hi, Daniel. How are you? Good. Uh, th- this has been a horrendous week here in Southern California, as you know. And, yeah, no uh, kidding. <laughs> and the fires were right over Irvine, and now they're m- moving to over South County and towards uh, uh, Riverside County through the national um, Cleveland National Forest. Mm-hmm. So many homes were threatened in Orange County, but not, of course, as bad as in other parts of Southern California. Um, what was this uh, so-called Islamo-Fascism Awareness Week that we uh, supposedly had last week? Um, this, was, uh, this was a call by David Horowitz to launch a nationwide offensive on the, on the campuses uh, to basically to try to bring about a, a, a recasting of what has been seen more and more as a war for empire by the U.S. to recast that war in people's minds as actually a defensive war, uh, in defense, a war in defense of civilization against barbarism, against a worldwide, an imagined worldwide monolithic threat, you know, which seeks to take over the world. It's a very apocalyptic. Uh, yes. we, we have actually an update. Uh, the talk by Mike Davis is on Wednesday at noon at the Cal IT uh, 2 building on campus here at UC Irvine. It's at noon on Wednesday. Thank you. Yeah, why, did, why, why do you think they're doing this consort, concerted effort to uh, try to raise so-called awareness about this? I'm sorry, why did... Uh, why, did uh, why is Horowitz doing this right now? Why are they doing it? Yeah. 
Well, you know, in the, it's a good question. In March, uh, Horowitz mobilized his, uh, his uh, student for academic freedom in Washington, and they met with Rick Santorum and other conservative politicians, and they cooked up this plan for Islamofascism Awareness Week. And at, that, and, and at the, the keynote talk that Rick Santorum gave, he made, interestingly, he made a point that Tommy Franks had told President Bush to stop calling the enemy of the U.S. cowards because you can't get the American people to be afraid of cowards. You have to actually, you know, invoke in people a fear that can actually, you know, continue to cohere them around the U.S., uh, uh, you know, aggression that's being carried out against the world. And Centorum at that event bragged about having been the one who got Bush to first use the expression Islamofascism. So this is a very concentrated attempt to manipulate people's sentiments and feelings, you know, and to, again, recast what's happening in a, in a, you know, in, in, in a whole different light. So you have a situation which is very complicated. You know, you don't, you know, you have a situation where, where uh, what the U.S. is doing is really being condemned by people around the world and also in this country. And at the same time, many of the forces that are mobilizing in opposition at this point are fundamentalists, do you know, do in their outlook uh, uh, promote very backward and outmoded ideas. And the people are being put in this position of choosing between, you know, what, what uh, I think Bob Avakian has very well put, two outmoded's, you know, McWorld or Jihad. And what these people are trying to do is to, is to, is to harden that polarization in the country convincing, and in the world while convincing people that, that this Islamofascism is the greater threat. All of this is, an, is really, you know, an attempt to tell people you either are with us, the U.S., or you're with the terrorists. And what we've been trying to do is to actually bring forward an understanding, you know, help people get a deeper substantive understanding of what, what's behind this and what's behind this, what's happening in the world, and to help people to see that we can't be put in a position of choosing between these two these two forces and to actually need to bring forward something different that doesn't that recognizes one that you don't that you can you Nothing. can oppose the US well, aggression right. without supporting fundamentalism. Oh, it's coming through the phone. Yeah. You're not using Yeah. The um the um uh, th- yeah, thanks. Yeah. What what were plans? Uh, I heard that Ancota was supposed to come to Irvine. Yes. That apparently was canceled, and I don't know if that's because of the opposition that was mounting there or what. He went to, but, she uh, went to she USC. At USC, and there right. was quite a protest in opposition, which had a very good coverage in the L.A. Times. So the opposition to this week has been very, I think, very important and very uh, uh, encouraging in terms of the way in which people responded to this. I've campuses around the country, Berkeley, Columbia, uh, uh, UCLA, USC, Irvine, you know, there's lot, you know, there was a petition circulated in New Orleans condemning Ann Coulter's appearance at, at uh, Tulane. There were efforts at the University of Washington. You know, everywhere these people appeared, University of Pennsylvania, Penn State, Brown University, there was opposition that came forward. And what we, uh, that's very heartening. And what we are trying to do is to get people to get beyond, you know, the, the spontaneous you know, sense correctly that this is a racist term, which I think it does invoke and is intended to invoke racist sentiments 
but that's not the essence of what they're trying to do. The problem with Islamofascism and what they're promoting isn't fundamentally that it's racist, is that it's fundamentally a lie about what is going on in the world. You know, there's a book by John Mearsheimer and Stephen Wall, a very controversial book that criticizes Israel. It's called The Israel Lobby and U.S. Foreign Policy. Right. And, in there, and in there, they take on this very argument, this attempt to, conf to conflate or to bring together, to claim that all of these different forces, Hamas, Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, you know, are all, are all a single worldwide opposition. And they, they take that argument apart, and they say that most of these forces are actually in motion because of what the U.S. and Israel are, have done to the Palestinians. And this is what's in the U.S. occupation in the Middle East, and this is what's invoking this hatred among people throughout the world, or at least these, these forces around it. There's more fundamental things going on that Mike Davis has actually written about in terms of the, 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 the way in which the people are being driven from the land, the way in which the cities have become for the first time uh, the, you know, the majority of the population of the world are now living in cities, but they're not being integrated into them. They're people are surrounding them in these, in these uh, urban ghettos. And that this is the, the breeding ground and the social base for the forces that are being attracted to fundamentalism. And the U.S. bears a great deal of responsibility for all of that because of what, you know, what imperialist uh, uh, globalization has done to the world's economy. And also because it has kept in power these religious, you know, these very fundamentalist religious forces, you know, not just Iran, but Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, you know, the Taliban, and now this new regime. Even Iraq has, has thanks to the U.S. invasion, overturned a 1959, uh, you know, uh, secular law that gave women you know, equal rights in relation to uh, divorce, the, the U.S. invasion of, of Iraq has led to the overthrow of that law and the, and the, uh, the invoking of now of, of Islam as the, and Sharia law as the final arbiter of the rights of women under Iraq. That's what the U.S. is actually doing and what these people were disguising and what they were doing. Uh, we're talking with Reggie uh, Dillon of the uh, National Project to Defend Dissent and Critical Thinking in Academia in the wake of the so-called Islamo-Fascism Awareness Week that supposedly took place last week. Um, how do, you, do you know how this term uh, got into fashion? Um, I, I know George Bush has used it, right? Yes, he has. And, it, and I think it's become popular. I mean... Like I said, there's very conscious efforts to invoke it. I think it came. I think it was a term. It may be a term that came out of, uh, of not Morocco, but a Middle Eastern or a country in that part of the world. You know, where people were being slaughtered by uh, fundamentalists. You know, in that in that country. But it's it's modern use and and its use as a as a global you know as a global template for all the opposition to what the U.S. is doing in the world. That's something that the Bush regime has been been invoking and using uh, recently. In fact, it's very interesting if you look at the October seventeenth uh, Maureen Dowd column in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. She's a regular columnist for the New York Times. She began that piece this way. Now comes Islamofascism Awareness Week, and she wrote a couple of paragraphs about it. But her the whole rest of her article about Rudy Giuliani and the fact that Giuliani was baiting the Democratic 
candidates for president and saying, why is it that not one of those candidates will use the term Islamic terrorism? And there's a reason, I think, why she did that, why she, why she put those two things together, because Daniel Pipes, who is one of the people that Horowitz uh, uh, put out on the hustings this week, right. is an advisor to Giuliani. He's and Norman Poderitz, right. who's now published a new book called World War Four: The Long War Against Islamofascism, I think is a very, you know, is a, is a mentor of Horowitz. So, so there's a whole, yeah. you know, con- together of the neocons and the Christian Zionists or the Christian fascists in this country around a very hardcore po- program in defense of Israel and in defense and in, in, in an attempt to fundamentally transform the Middle East. So, you know, there's a very strategic goal involved in trying to invoke this. The irony is they are losing, right? I mean, the Christian fundamentalists in America are losing at the ballot box, or will lose in the ballot box in the elections coming up. Uh, It doesn't look like they're going to... They're split right now. Well, I think we're a long... You know, (laughs) this has been the longest presidential campaign in history, I think, mainly because they've been trying to keep people in their seats by telling them, you know, just put up with Bush for a little longer and then you can somehow something will change. And uh, so I think we're a long way from the election and and I think it's, pre- I will say it's premature to predict, you know, the, the Christian fundamentalists are, have a long, have a lot of work, have a lot of, yeah. lot of work in, in ahead of them and that they're trying to carry out. So, I don't know. You know, Giuliani, I believe, is the front runner of the Republicans. You know, and whether and he's very much, you know, unpopular with the fundamentalists. But I can't say oh, I what. Yeah. You know how that's going to be resolved. You know. Right. Right. How um, there's this. Um, what What do you mean by on your website? You have this uh, uh, article of, about the hypocrisy of newly minted feminists. Yes. What, what does that? Good. What is that about? I'm glad, you, I'm glad you asked. It's called The Hypocrisy of Newly Minted Feminists and David Horowitz's Dangerous Agenda. And what this is about is the fact that the people that are, that, that the whole week, Islamofascism Awareness Week, was cast very much as a week to bring attention to, and to, to bring attention to the, the treatment of women under Islam. And the idea, the point about newly minted feminists is that the people, you know, Horowitz and the people that, he, he represents and that he's putting out there are the farthest thing from feminists or the supporters of equality of women, either here in this country or in the Islamic world. You know, in the Islamic world, they have support. You know, for instance, one of the things that we did was to present Nodi Darwish when she spoke at UCLA with the question, "Would you sign? Since you claim to be opposed to the oppression of women under Islam, will you sign our petition?" demanding that the U.S. cut off all economic and military aid to Saudi Arabia, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and Iraq, because they're all Islamic fundamentalist states. Well, of course, they're not going to do that, because these states are allies at this point of the U.S., you know. And also, the people that they're claiming now to be part of this newly minted feminist are people like Rick Santorum, who is not only against abortion, he's against birth control and thinks women actually belong in the home and not working. Or Frank Pastore, another one of the people that he, that he fielded this week, who actually thinks uh, homosexuality is a crime that should be punished by death, and who, does, who, who openly says evolution is, is not true. So the idea that these people 
are the champions of feminine, have now become the champions of feminine is ludicrous. And there's a new book by Susan Faludi called The Terror Dream, which we, which the publisher allowed us to put seven pages of it on our website. And I really urge people to look at it and, frankly, to read the entire book because she makes, she documents the fact that the feminist movement got plagued by the Bush regime before the war with Afghanistan. They went to them. They told them how much they, could, they were concerned about the women under the Taliban. They had them come to the White House and give, give uh, talks to people, you know. And then the moment the war started, she said they were dropped like a hot potato, and the issue was dropped. And the U.S. said then, we can't possibly, you know, uh, be concerned about the issues of women now in, Afghan in Afghanistan, which is playing itself out, where outside of the main city, women are still wearing burqas, women are still suffering terrible oppression. Yeah. And, you, and they, she documents how they did the same thing again before they went into Iraq. So you can look at what they're doing, and you can say, oh, gee, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So the, so, the Bush administration is just using... Uh, the feminist movement. Well, yeah, they're, yeah, they're in fact not only using it; they were threatening before this week to have protests at women's studies centers on the campuses to protest the fact in their their claim that the women's studies centers have done nothing in their scholarship to uh, address the problem of the treatment of women under Islam. This is one of Horowitz's, you know, famous lies. In other words, he makes an assertion because it serves him. And then when you survey the scene, there's a very good piece that was written in the Huffington Post about this. It was called Laughing at Islamofascism and Awareness Week. And the author describes all of the, a, a number of scholars that he had encountered on the campuses who were doing just that, examining and critiquing sure. and, and opposing what's going on uh, 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 to women under, under fundamental, Islamic fundamentalism. Yeah, I, I believe there was a threat to uh, uh, have a sit-in at the Women's Center here also, or the Women's Studies right? Office uh, on campus here, but yeah. I don't think anything, ha I haven't heard that anything happened. Yeah, we haven't actually heard that they went ahead and carried that out anywhere. You know, I think some of the things that they did, that they called for, I think they summed up, you know, tactically maybe we shouldn't do that, you know. In fact, Hor you know, Horowitz, is, <laughs> anybody who has any experience with Horowitz knows he's a complete liar. So he, he goes on, and he literally, in his speech at Columbia, I think, and I think also at Emory, he said, you know, anybody who thinks this is against, you know, uh, Muslims is, 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 is completely wrong. You know, we're supporting moderate Muslims, you know, and that's the whole point of this. Well, you know, if you look at Robert Spencer, my understanding is his analysis is that Islam as a religion is violent. It's more. It's violent as opposed to Christian Christianity or Judaism. Well, that is frankly condemning a religion. And Robert Spencer has given talks in front of the U.S. Central Command, the Military Central Command. So this is the this is the outlook that's being uh, uh, brought to the military as they as they prepare their you know their future wars in the world. This is very serious stuff. And this is why what we've been trying to do with the, with the National Project to Defend Dissent and Critical Thinking is to really encourage people to get a much deeper understanding of what's going on. To, you know, there's a lot of response to this, and it needs to, a lot more light needs to be shined on it, and not just, you know, not just, uh, you know, the, the protest has to be more and more substantive, 
You know, the discourse and the critiques have to be more substantive, and the understanding of the dangers of this has to actually get deepened, because I think both of these are things that people are coming to understand but don't yet actually fully appreciate. Uh, I'm sure that if if Horowitz was on... If Horace was on the show, he would dispute that he he's lying. But uh, anyway, he's not here, uh, so he, you know I'm sure he would dispute that. Uh, Faludi also, David yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't want to get into char- you know character. No, 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 I understand. Yeah. Let me just give you one example. He was on television for three hours a couple of Sundays ago on, on uh, Book TV, and on, I got a chance to ask him some questions or to pose some questions. One about the firing of Lord Churchill. And the other about the, fi- the denial of tenure to Norman Finkelstein, both of whom I said were at the top of Horowitz's hit list. And here's how he responded. He said, actually, I was opposed to the firing of Churchill, and I don't think I even wrote about Finkelstein. Okay, that's what Horowitz said. Okay, he's half right about the first point. He was opposed to firing Churchill at a certain point for the content of his speech, but he played a crucial role in getting Churchill fired for academic misconduct, all of which was a fraud. In other words, he championed the firing of Churchill. He just tried to help the University of Colorado find a way to do it that would help it avoid being accused of going after someone for their political speech. And his website and his book, you know, the professors leads with the Churchill case in order to, you know, and, and turns Churchill into a demon. And what, in relation yeah. to Finkelstein, he, uh-huh. maybe he, he doesn't remember the book, but uh, he has three pages in his book, The Professors, attacking Norman Finkelstein, and his website was just filled with vitriolic attack aimed at Norman Finkelstein, Finkelstein for months and months. He let Alan Dershowitz write. There's a, there's a, a journalist who's a, a regular columnist for Churchill, in, from Israel, who actually has been sued by Neve Gordon and convicted of, of liable for the things he says. And this guy's allowed to write column after column, column attacking Norman Finkelstein. Maybe so, you could tell the listeners who uh, Finkelstein is. Okay, Norman Finkelstein is, uh, is a, an internationally renowned scholar. And, you know, um, and, and he's the son of Holocaust deniers who's been extremely critical of the Israeli treatment of the Palestinians and extremely critical of the Zionist supporters of Israel in this country. For that, he has received a tremendous, tremendous you know, vitriol of attack. He's been accused of being a Holocaust denier, uh, a Holocaust trivializer, you know, all this stuff, really, really terrible stuff. And yet he's renowned uh, Raoul Hilberg, who until his recent thing was considered the dean of scholarship of Holocaust studies, the most renowned scholar internationally on Holocaust studies, was one of the people who wrote to the university to the, the DePaul University supporting Finkelstein being given tenure, and yet he was denied tenure. And even the university said, a liberal university, the largest Catholic university in the country, said his his scholarship is is internationally renowned. He's an outstanding teacher, but we're not giving him, him tenure because of his, he has a lack of collegiality, meaning he writes very biting criticisms of people who are lying and using the Holocaust, in his view, to justify these terrible crimes that Israel is committing against the Palestinians. And I'll tell you, I was at a, at a, 
at a, a, an unprecedented uh, academic freedom symposium at the University of Chicago just 10 days before Islamo-Fascism Awareness Week, mm. where Finkelstein, John Mearsheimer, you know, from the University of Chicago, Noam Chomsky sent a half-hour video presentation, uh, Tariq Ali moderated it, Tony Jutt, a really highly regarded scholar from NYU, uh, and others spoke about the great concern. There was a thousand people in the audience, and they spoke about the great concern they have about the threat to academic freedom, and it was very much triggered by and focused on the, the treatment of Norman Finkelstein. And so that's just one of many cases, right, where academics have uh, lost tenure. Yes, yes. It's not the only one. And I'll tell you this. The day after Finkelstein resigned, he resigned on September 5th. On September 6th, uh, Horowitz's front page mag uh, website ran an article by this Stephen Plout from, from Israel that I was describing saying, you know, more housekeeping to be done at DePaul. And he singled out another professor who doesn't have tenure and is trying to get tenure and said he should be fired as well. And there's a woman at the at Barnard, uh, Nadia Abu El Haj, who's a really renowned, a very respected uh, young scholar who's written uh, a really interesting book called Facts on the Ground about. Uh, mm. She's an anthropologist, and it's about archaeology. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. You know about it. The New York, also New York Times. I think online petitions demanding yeah. she not be granted tenure. The mainstream media has uh, reported on her work. Yeah. 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 And her book. I've got her book. I've just started reading. It's very interesting, you know. And it, has, and it really, it's not an, not, it's not fundamentally an attack on Israel. It's actually a, an attempt at examining the epistemology, the epistemological questions of, how, you know, what you, the mindset you bring to an investigation and how that affects the conclusions you draw. It's very interesting, you know. And most and of these, they want to just yeah. drive out of the academy. Are most of these attacks aimed at people that do Middle Eastern studies? I'm sorry? Uh, are most of the attacks aimed at people uh, doing Middle Eastern studies? Yeah, a great deal of this. But, you know, this was, but I think it's very, and this is very serious. Um, you know, they attacked the, the, the Middle Eastern Studies Department at Columbia. They've gone after a lot of scholars, who have, any scholars who are critical of, you know, John Mearsheimer and, and, and Stephen Wall. Stephen Wall teaches at Harvard. John Mearsheimer teaches at the University of Chicago. They've just published a book. They're having venues taken out from under them because it's considered so controversial to criticize it for scholars of their stature to criticize Israel that they're not even being allowed to speak. They're not being completely prevented, but there's half a dozen venues taken away from them. So this is a you know this targeting of Middle Eastern studies. Tony Jutt had a had a venue taken out for him, taken out, out from under him, and the ADL uh, Aid Foxman was openly you know. Uh, Connected to that, so back in I think last November, so that ADL is, is the but it's but it's ADL than the ADL on, on yeah. Middle East studies, and that's what the Lord Churchill affair is really shines the light on. And if you read, for instance, Gregory Rodriguez wrote an article in the in the New York Times or the LA Times. He's a regular columnist for the LA Times. Right. After after Churchill was fired, and he said, "Look, we have to clean out all of these departments like ethnic studies, women's studies, you know." Uh, Basically, in other words, there's a whole attempt to, to go after whole sections of the academy that arose out of the 60s and that are bringing critiques, of, you know, new critiques uh, about important issues that, that there's an attempt to actually 
reverse the verdict and to, to overturn all of those. And Horowitz is very much in the middle of that. So uh, I just want to, you know, I think, yeah. so I just think this is a, he's not the only one. Ann Neal and ACTA, American Council of Trustees and Alumni, are also spearheading this attack on on the university. So this is very, very serious. And our website has been, you know, we, www.defendcriticalthinking.org has been doing everything we can to mobilize, to awaken and to mobilize the academy to the seriousness of what's been going, what is going on, and the, and the strategic goals behind it. And when Chomsky spoke at the University of Chicago in his, in his videotape talk, he did the same thing. He drew attention to the decades-long effort to, to change the, the climate in the universities, which the, the people in power see as very dangerous to what they're, because it, critis, it, it critiques what they're doing in the world, and what they're doing in the world can't stand up to critique. Uh, we're talking with uh, Reggie Dillon uh, of this uh, website, uh, this group that's uh, put up a website, National Project to Defend Dissent and Critical Thinking in Academia. The website is defendcriticalthinking.org, and uh, there's more materials on that site. Um, you mentioned that you put up a chapter from um, a new book called The Terror Dream, Fear and Fantasy in Post-9-11 America by Susan Faludi, which is a critique of um, the way some feminists have been uh, collaborating with the Bush administration. Uh, one of the interesting uh, kind of ironies is that Bush himself has come out uh, as uh, pretending or claiming to be an um, advocate f- uh, for feminism. Uh, for instance, he, he says, the central goal of the terrorists is the brutal oppression of women in Afghanistan. And uh, as he signed the Afghan Women and Children Relief Act, uh, has the has the feminist movement members shied away from him now, uh, from the Bush administration? Or are they still collaborating? Um, I, you know, I <laughs> I hesitate. I, I don't. I don't think that's quite an accurate description. I don't want to misrepresent. This is a very important book, and it isn't. And even the point that she was making in these these pages that we've got on our site isn't. Isn't you know it's trying to sum up a lesson you know she isn't calling them collaborators although there was a very bad you know dynamic at that point after nine one one where people were getting behind this regime because of this you know and her you know her book is more the way in which nine one one has been used to overthrow the whole movement for equality for women in this country and actually by blaming them. The feminization of this country for nine one one. It's a very interesting. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay, okay. So you wouldn't call the people that are being used uh, collaborators. Well, uh, here's the thing. Uh, Phyllis Chesler, who you know was at one point a highly respected uh, feminist, and uh, she spoke for Horowitz at Columbia this week. Wow. And and she wrote a terrible article attacking uh, a. a Feminist that I know, not a feminist, but a supporter of women's equality that I know, named Mary Lou Greenberger, and actually insinuated that she was a CIA agent. This is very scandalous stuff. But she is also a, a supporter of Zionism. So there's a way in which you know, and she's embraced the whole the whole argument, and she brings her, you know, her uh, uh, you know credentials as a feminist to this this you know, and attaches it to this terrible offensive by Horowitz. So she's playing, you know, that kind of, of, of activity is playing a very bad role. Ah, so, yeah. that, so that's an, 
So that's causing a split, and it must be causing a split among uh, the women's movement. Well, you know, I, I think there may even be one or two. I think I did hear that there was a women's studies department that that uh, was in support of what of this week, or or you know was led to think they should support it, or something like that. So I think definitely confu- look, there's real confusion because there is terrible treatment of women under fundamentalism of any kind. You know, the you know the only reason that people are People are being drawn to the treatment of fundamentalism under Islam because that's the enemy. And frankly, because these, these regimes in, in these parts of the world have been kept in power very much by imperialism because they serve the interests of imperialism. And people are f- forced to stay in these you know, really backward and terrible conditions. People have to recognize that's real. But if you don't recognize the responsibility, you, the U.S. is not going to be able to liberate that's not its interest to liberate the people of the world. They're trying to actually assert their dominance over the world, and they will ally with anyone to do it. The Taliban, Osama bin Laden, they funded them in the war against Afghanistan. Uh, uh, Saddam Hussein, they funded him in the war against Iran. People, you know, people need to know some history in order to take them on. They, the U.S. overthrew Mossadegh in Iran in in 53 and in, and installed the Shah of Iran and his brutal regime you know is being praised by Horowitz as you know uh, bringing a, 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 you know modernization to Iraq and Iran but it was so despised uh-huh. that it, it very much led to the upsurge in the revolution that enabled the the fundamentalists in Iran to come to power so it's very important that people really Dig in and study these questions. You know, I urge you to go to our website and read there. You know, there's a lot of, you know, I, I particularly write for Revolution Newspaper, and I think it's really playing a tremendous role in trying to bring people the kind of understanding they need and the analysis they need of what's going on. But I really think this is a time that people need to take responsibility for understanding this, for seeing beneath the surface, and helping to lead people away from this direction that the world is being taken and this country is being taken. Uh, what, and if that's what, what we yeah. accomplished with, the, with our opposition to this week, then I will say we've really accomplished something. And I think there's something to that. A lot of articles have been written that are real, have been really good, a lot of uh, right. uh, statements and protests, all of which I think has been a very good development. What's the status of, his, uh, of David Horace's attempt to get legislatures to pass uh, bills that so-called uh, defend students' bill of rights. Well, it's a good question. He's tried this in, I think, more than twenty states. Um, I don't think he's been successful in getting them passed. Although my understanding is that in in uh, Florida, Jeb Bush is you know is doing a lot to try to implement it. In any case, um, and I've also heard that the Department of Education has adopted his academic bill of rights and is going to actually use it to in evaluating. Uh, uh, Funding and, and 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 try to use it as a as a way to uh, you know force universities to give more weight to what Orwitz is trying to do. So I, I think he has not for a minute given up on it. He's bragging about the accomplishments he has made, and and uh, it's it's very much in the works and in the mix. Why why is it misleading to call it Bill of Rights? Well, <laughs> you know I. I I advise everyone to 
to read The Art of Political War, which was written by Horowitz in the year 2000. In it, he, he, he teaches, he's trying to teach the Republicans how to pickpocket the language of the, of the progressive forces on the left right. in order to, to promote their a very reactionary agenda. So Horowitz, you know, the students for academic freedom, <laughs> what, what could sound better than that? These right. people act like brown shirts. They go into classes, they snitch on people, they, they, they've testified at legislatures against faculty for, for how, you know, what they're teaching in the classrooms. You know, the Academic Bill of Rights is an attempt to actually, you know, undermine the whole methodology of critical thinking in the academy by telling people, you know, that, uh, that stu- it's, a, it's about the students' rights you know, to to uh, maintain <laughs> the ideas they come into the university with. You know, you have kids who are coming to school who've been who've been trained in fundamentalism, who think evolution is a lie, and they confront facts and the truth. And what Horowitz is doing, although he claims he's not trying to promote religion, objectively he's giving voice to the argument one that people have a right that that you can't challenge. You know these kinds of ideas. If you're a, if you're a, a professor, and also he applies that to, you know, he, he wants to claim that you know there should be balance in the teaching of, of the social sciences. You know, so that and to claim that the, the the left in the academy is is only teaching one side of the story. Well, this is a long, you know, this is anyone who knows what's going on in, in, in the universities today would laugh laughs at the idea that somehow they're bastions of the left. I mean, everyone knows about Chemerinsky. Here's a renowned law, law professor whose who's appointment to be dean of the law school was, was given and then taken away, and then they were forced to reverse it. But it just shows you the pressure that's being made to actually transform these universities. And the Academic Bill of Rights is an integral part of that. Uh, is there, uh, talking about the law school, which has become uh, privatized, uh, even though it's at uh, UC, it's a private law school, basically, um, uh, supported by private funds. Um, is, the, is much of the attack by Horowitz on uh, private institutions, or is it on public institutions? Well, that's a good question. You know, he's, a lot of attention has been focused on his part on the public universities, because one, they, they, you know, it enables him to go to the legislatures and right. take pressure. Yeah, it yeah. also enables him to argue that that people, you know, people are paying taxes. They're funding these universities and they're teaching these terrible things. Uh-huh. So there's a value to going after the public universities for that reason. But you know, his his group was very much behind the attack on Columbia University, and that's a private institution. And so there's not a you know, there's not a, 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 a hesitancy to go after them. And one of the things that we're learning from, from administrators is that another way that the attack on, the, on, on critical thinking is being instituted, especially by this American Council of Trustees and Alumni is to tr- and in the Department of, of Education, is to try to uh, change the way, the, to, get con- for the, to get control of the way that universities are accredited. And that would affect uh, private in, uh, universities as well as public institutions. So this is there's on a lot of different levels. There is just very very dangerous. Effort. You know, uh, uh, William Bennett, Ward Connerly. These people are all part of this act, and they're and they're working on a whole other level to try to grab back the universities. Hank Brown, the president of 
of uh, University of Colorado, who was the one who actually ended up firing Churchill, is a founder of the American Council of Trustees and Alumni. Oh. And while he was telling the university that he was he hadn't made a decision, Horowitz, you know, in, in November of 06, gave a speech to his restoration workout weekend where he praised Brown for say for uh, or, or toasted him saying Hank Brown has been working for the past year to try to get rid of Ward Churchill. Mm. My question to both of them is which one of you is lying? Horowitz or Hank Brown? Hank Brown is a former U Republican senator, U.S. senator, who was appointed at, at uh, the University of Colorado after the Churchill thing started and then saw through the firing and is now has now resigned. So the whole thing looks really bad. He, he resigned. It, what's that? He resigned. Uh, yeah, Brown. he resigned in 2008, but he's already appointed other very prominent figures in ACTA, this American Council of Trustees and Alumni, to these administrative, you know, vice presidential positions. So they're really, this is a way that, that from above, through funding and through the positions being given to, you know, presidents, that they're grabbing a hold of the universities and trying to transform them. Do you, do you see, so you think that last week's uh, so-called Islamo-Fascism Awareness Week was, uh, was not successful? In the sense, from was not successful for, for from Horowitz's perspective. Was it a success from his perspective? Right. Um, well, it's a very good question. You know, uh, a very good question because part of the a lot of people who were hesitant about about our call to take it on felt like, look, if you you know if you take it on and you're not and, and you aren't able to to bring forward substantial opposition, then you are going to fuel this. And in any case, he's going to take the opposition use the opposition to promote itself. And I, I wrote an article for a revolution entitled, You Can't Defeat Fascism by Ignoring mm -hmm. It. So I, we felt you had to take this on. And I think whatever Horowitz claimed, he claimed on day one it was already a victory. You know, And on day two he's already launched a conservative movement on the campuses. So leaving Horowitz's you know, self-declarations aside, there isn't a question objectively, did we accomplish, did we were we able to accomplish something? Did we actually deliver a defeat in the sense of politically, a political defeat in the sense of an awakening of the academy through this and um, giving a, you know, bringing forward a growing awareness of the serious danger that he and this initiative represent? And, you know, we're still, we're actually calling on people to write to our website and to, when you go there and write us reports about what went on, what your impressions are, what you saw, and what, in other words, we're trying to, it's not very scientifically, but I would say our initial feeling is that that this that we accomplished something very important during this week, and not just us, but we along with a lot of other people who came forward to oppose it. Yeah, I was uh, I was going to ask you about uh, this. Uh, I, I know a lot of people have put up petitions uh, attacking mm -hmm. this, uh, and there's one uh, actually there's one at UC Irvine. Uh, there's a petition uh, on this week uh, about uh, saying that it's a cover. This uh, fascism awareness week is a cover for politicized attacks on the foundations of academic freedom at UCI and across yeah. the nation. And that petition is at www.petitiononline.com, and you can get to that uh, website and look at the petition. There's been yeah, lots of signatures. We've got it. We've got it linked to our site, and I understand Mark Levine wrote a very good article very much based on that petition. So uh, 
I think the people at Irvine have played a really important Mark Levine, I don't know if everyone knows this, is in Horowitz's book. He's one of the 101 most dangerous professors. That's the crime of what Horowitz is doing, you know, one of the crimes. Right, he's a history professor at UC yeah, Irvine. Yeah. Uh, we, we're going to end this uh, program with a clip, uh, audio clip from one of the people who have uh, talked about Horowitz and about academic freedom and critical thinking, and that is Bob Avakian, who's uh, head of the Revolutionary Communist Party. And so uh, let's play that clip. And thank you very much, Reggie, for uh, Dylan, uh, for being on the show uh, and uh, on your work uh for this, uh, against this, uh, this proposals uh, that uh, Horowitz have been putting out, uh, and you're with the National Project to Defend Dissent and Critical Thinking in Academia, right? Uh, www.defendcriticalthinking.org, and I want to thank you, Daniel, for giving me this opportunity to speak to your audience. Yeah, that's great. Uh, thank you, and we're going to play this uh, clip now, uh, audio clip. Great. Um, you know, I have an article this now, week. Horowitz is someone who, who yeah, okay, puts Bye-bye. himself forward as a thinker of some substance and arrogantly and frankly in sort of junior high school terms denounces people for example Cornell, like Cornell West for being a quote unquote academic airhead Ooh. now it's interesting and important in light of this to look at his own level and standards of quote-unquote scholarship. As I've mentioned before, Horowitz is someone who not only issued a major statement and and put it into newspapers all over the campuses in the U.S. denouncing and opposing the idea of reparations for black people because of slavery and the whole history of oppression, but then he expanded his argumentation in a book called Left Illusions in which he actually went so far as to say that where's the gratitude of black people toward America? And I have to admit that it took me a while to get around to looking at this book. And when I finally did, not long ago, I was stunned by the level of argumentation over this point in particular. It was incredibly moronic. I mean, first of all, things that are factually not true, as well as things that are just clearly outrageous and even ridiculous, and, you know, overtly contrary to fact. For example, he makes a big deal, well, you know, listen, listen to this argument. There's been lots of slavery throughout history, but it was unprecedented when the U.S. put an end to slavery. Think of the level of that argument. A man is married to a woman for 25 years and beats her with a stick every day. Then, after 25 years, he relents and only beats her with his fist. Where's the gratitude? And it's not even factually true. One of the things that came up, and this entered into the movie and the story of Amistad, for example, is that other countries in Europe, and in particular England, had not only abolished slavery, but were actively seeking to interfere with the slave trade that was still being carried out in the U.S., even though it was supposed to be illegal a little ways into the 19th century, in the 1800s. 
Now, the English ruling class did this not simply out of moral revulsion against slavery, although there, there was a whole abolitionist movement in England that did, was very strongly morally motivated. And it's, it's interesting, and this shows us again the complexity and why, you, why we need the leap to communism, that a lot of the abolitionist forces in England were the same people who, when Darwin came forward with evolution, vigorously and vociferously opposed it because they were proceeding from a religious-based morality and opposing slavery. And that shows you once again, we need a leap to a different historical synthesis. But that's a side point, even though a very important one. But it's just the idea that somehow the U.S. carried out an unprecedented act by abolishing slavery is just not even, first of all, ridiculous, outrageous, and not even in accordance with fact. But again, it's, it's in accordance with a narrative that's being, behind which there is an increasingly concerted and powerful drive to impose and to exclude from discourse anything that contradicts that narrative. Or you would think from Horowitz that there was this period of slavery and some bad things happened to black people, but then after slavery is over, everything was fine for them and there was... You know, they had their chance to get along well in the society. You would never know about the reversal and betrayal of Reconstruction, or at least certainly you would never know about all the devastating effects of that and the, the generations of horrific oppression and lynching and, you know, the fact that as one psychologist who studied, I mentioned this in the talk Revolution, one psychologist who studied black people in the South during this period said, in effect, every black person, particularly those living in the South, lived under a death sentence, which might or might not be carried out, but could at any time. And not only through the normal procedures and official procedures of the law, but by night riding Ku Klux Klaners and sheriffs acting together with the KKK. Or other statements by people who study this period and have said that it's doubtful that there, particularly with regard to young black males in the South during this period, it is doubtful that there was a single one who was not traumatized by the fear of lynching. Where's the gratitude? And even after these overt forms of oppression in the form of segregation and semi-feudal exploitation on the plantations in a, in a new form between the end of Reconstruction and into the 60s, even after that was largely changed and new forms of oppression were brought forward, look at the situation that the masses of black people have been subjected to and forcibly have had, have had forcibly imposed on them. Particularly those locked into the inner cities, denied employment by both the dynamics of capitalist accumulation and by conscious policy of the ruling class. Discriminated against where they do get employment. Discriminated, discriminated against in every sphere of society in a continuing way. 
As I pointed out before, even Howard Dean brought out when he got in trouble for talking about how we have to appeal to southern white guys with Confederate flags on their pickup trucks. Then he had to recoup a little bit. And he said, well, you know, I just, I probably didn't say this quite the right way. And then he said, and we do need to have a big conversation about race in America. And he brought out just one of innumerable things like this that could be cited of how they did a recent study sending people as college graduates applying for jobs to corporations with the same resumes, some black, some white, the same resumes, except some of the whites said they had a conviction for a drug violation and they were hired before blacks who had an absolutely clean criminal record. Where's the gratitude? Scores and hundreds of black people are murdered by the police hurling insults and racist epithets along with bullets and then insulting the family members on top of it. Time after time after time. And you can just look through the media and see all the reports of this. It's an institution that's known about, the throwdown gun, where when the police have killed somebody, usually black or brown in the inner city, they bring out a throwdown gun and put it by the dead body as evidence that they were endangered by the person they just killed. Where's the gratitude? And this is the level of argumentation that we're getting from the likes of David Horowitz. That he even argues this way. Well, listen to this. Well, if you say that all this wealth was created by exploiting black people in slavery, didn't they end up getting some of the wealth? Where's the gratitude? And then the coup de grace is, well, black people in America have a higher standard of living than black people in Africa. So what do they have to complain about? Never mind the centuries of oppression and the horror of the Middle Passage where many were thrown overboard to save the rest of the cargo or killed when they rebelled, packed together in conditions that are almost indescribable with each other's feces all over, all over the with their, their feces all over each other, chained in the holds of ships, robbed of their identities, even their names, their culture, families formed and then broken apart, little children sold away from their parents for generation after generation after generation, while in turn Africa, both the parts from which the slaves were mainly stolen but other parts as well, was ravaged by colonialism and imperialism. And you have the nerve to talk about how the standard of living in Africa is lower than it is for black people in America? And this is what's presented as respectable and intelligent discourse by the likes of David Horowitz and by his ruling class connections. 
And when you think about what's actually being argued here, would you have thought a few decades ago that someone would actually come out and make these arguments about slavery and how black people ought to be grateful for it? And that tells you to what extremes things are being taken by this core of the ruling class and how much they have to reverse even partial verdicts that came forward through the course of upsurge in previous times concentrated in the 60s in the U.S. They even have to go to these extremes. And if this weren't such a horror, what Horowitz is arguing, it would be laughable. And you'd say, and you have the nerve to call someone an academic airhead? But it's not humor, it's horror. These arguments by Horowitz are crude and frankly stupid. Moronic. Concentrated ignorance. But they serve a very definite purpose and are aiming at having a very definite effect. They provide a rationalization for the system and the ruling class and in particular those at the core of ruling class power now and on another level. They provide a rationalization for those, particularly among the more privileged strata in the society, who want to feel justified even smug in their privileged position even while this position is inextricably unavoidably bound up with the history of slavery continuing oppression and white supremacy down to the present day in the US uh, that was an audio clip from um Bob Avakian, who's the leader of the Revolutionary Communist Party, talking about uh, David Horowitz and the threats to uh, academic thinking. Uh, this is Subversity here on KUCI. Uh, we are about to end our program. Uh, first, a reminder, uh, Mike Davis, UCI historian, will be speaking on the uh, fires uh, situation, um, reflecting on that. Uh, his talk is titled, Katrina in the Suburbs, question mark, the f- politics of fire in Southern California. He'll be speaking at noon in room 3008 at UCI's Cal IT building, Cal IT 2 building, which is next to Bren Hall uh, on Ring Road at UC Irvine at noon on Wednesday, October 31st. Uh, this is Dan Zhang signing off with Subversity. Today we had uh, a guest, uh, Reginald Dillon of um, website on critical thinking defendcriticalthinking.org www.defendcriticalthinking.org talking about the so-called Islamo-Fascism Awareness Week that has just ended um, and the work of David Horowitz. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity. This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.